0: Oh dear. <sighs> hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob Jay, and in today's episode, I speak with Noah Labhart, founder of mobile development agency TouchTap, co founder and CTO of startup Variable, and creator and host of the awesome podcast, Code Story. We speak about his journey from learning mobile development to founding his own mobile development studio, how he built his client base and his brand, the role networking has played in his success, what being a CTO actually involves, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So before we get into today's conversation, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you listening who have subscribed and left the show a five-star review. It's been super helpful in helping new listeners find the show, so thank you very much for that. And if you haven't left a review for the show, please do so. It really helps. I also wanted to make a quick plug for Code Story, which is hosted by Noah, who you're about to hear the conversation with now. If you're a fan of the podcast, How I Built This, or are interested in how startups came to be, with a focus on the technical aspects of how that happened, then this is a show that you definitely want to check out. It's super interesting. If you like Binging Podcasts, there's three seasons, season three is going on right now, so plenty of content. Give it a listen. I think you guys will definitely like it. Now, on to my conversation with Noah it's one of those strange things so i started i started this podcast because i didn't find a podcast that was what i was looking for so i was like oh just do my own because you know this is what developers do if you can't find something you just create it and then as soon as as i released the first episode i find out you know there's 10 different podcasts that already were doing what i wanted (laughs) and then you messaged me and then i've spent the last two weeks just listening to code story and every interview that you've done so i feel like we know each other already (laughs)
1: Well, first off, thanks for listening. I I certainly appreciate that.
0: So like I said, I've been listening to some of your interviews and I know the first question that you ask people is, tell me about your life outside of tech. So tell me about your life outside of tech.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, it's interesting. It's one of my my most favorite questions because I feel like, you know, we're seen as tech people as very only left-brained, you know, only only coders, you know, and, and there's just so much more to tech people. You know, it's like, a carpenter uses a hammer, right? Well, we use you know, Visual Studio and Xcode and things like that. Me outside of tech. So uh, I'm, I've been married to my beautiful wife, Erin, for 11 years. We have three kids, nine, six, and four. So we have a, f- a full house and we are done. No more kids. So that, that takes up, I mean, majority of my time. I am a, a podcast host, uh, Code Story, and I've produced that for uh, a year now, 50 plus episodes. I am a a CTO at a company um, called Variable. I used to be a CEO and founder at a a mobile development agency. I guess this is a little more tech, though. (laughs) You know, we always fall back into the tech, too, right?
0: It's a hard question, right? Especially if you're really passionate about tech, because then it, it blurs the line a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's it's interesting. You can see the influences of people if they if they really get outside of tech. I'm also an outdoorsman. So for being a you know a tech professional and a digitally focused dude, you know, in the day to day, I very much enjoy the analog more than tech. So I, I like to get outside and uh, I like to hunt. I'm an avid sportsman. I like to shoot guns. I also like to um, fly fish to be in the mountains. And uh, so that, that's really fun to me. Faith is a really big, important part of my life. So uh, I'm a Christian and it's central to my family and, and my life. So that's another big part of me is, uh, is community, uh, loving on people. I, I usually have a couple of pots of coffee a day. I don't know if that's, that's not really that abnormal for a tech guy
0: though. No, but it's very fitting with the theme of the podcast. And I feel like it's kind of a rite of passage for a developer, even the people that don't do it anymore at some point they were 3 a.m. in the morning drinking a pot of coffee so
1: absolutely <laughs> totally true
0: <laughs> all right so like i said i've listened to a bunch of stuff and a lot of it is or that i've heard so far i'm sure there's others is the podcast journey story and i'm kind of interested in everything that came before code story before we get to code story because we're definitely going to get to it because i know my listeners will be super interested in actually listening to the show but before we get to any of that you started a mobile development agency called touchtap but before even that I think you're a web developer, and then for me, it's a little bit blurry between you being a web developer and TouchTap. So can you give us a bit of background on kind of what you did software development-wise leading up to starting TouchTap?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I, uh, so I graduated from college in 2005 and went to work at a software um, consulting company. We were doing .NET, uh, ASP.NET development. So I went and worked for Pier 1 Imports for a year as a consultant doing .NET development and still doing development on the on the side. Outside of that, even for my uncle's company. So I did that for about a year. And then I started a band. Uh <laughs> yeah. So I, I also play music. I guess
0: I should have put that outside of tech too. So what was the band called?
1: The band was called Withheld. We're actually we're we're still on Spotify.
0: Oh, nice. What kind of music is it? It's like a
1: an evanescence. So it's a female led heavy rock band.
0: Okay. I'm into that.
1: Yeah. Uh check it out. You may you may enjoy it. And so I started, man, and all of my bandmates were kind of south of where I was living. So I wanted to move closer and found this opportunity to work at Alcon Laboratories so that they make eye care products. And uh, so went to work for them. Still did software development on the side. Worked at Alcon Labs for eight years and basically learned a lot of project management, a lot of buy versus build, people management, budget management, business justification. Yeah, I was I was um, was very well taken care of. Worked with great people. Learned a lot. Um, was put through school. Got my MBA. Was uh, able to get my PMP while I was there, and they supported all of that. So I got a ton of really good foundational business stuff that helped my entrepreneurial journey. Towards about uh, like the year seven, which is when I was supporting manufacturing, I started to feel like I, I wasn't really seeing the difference I was making. You know, it was big box corporate world. Again, nothing bad to say about any of the people I worked with, that they, they were awesome and, and they took really good care of me. I learned a lot. But I just wasn't really seeing the fruits of my labor. It's like no matter how hard I worked, you know, there were two things sort of at play. One, it was a big corporation. And so it takes a lot to move the needle, period. And then two, Alcon, um, our product was eye care products, right? So I worked in IT and in software and it was really more of a necessary evil kind of thing. It's more like an expense to be managed. And, and I, I just, I didn't want to work as hard as I could be rewarded, but not see the fruits of my labor. So I started to get the entrepreneurial edge. Little background too. I have a ton of family who are entrepreneurs. that have their own business. My my dad, my sister, my brother's done a stint, and as an entrepreneur, lots of my uncles, uh, etc.
0: Okay, so big influence there.
1: Yeah, big influence. Definitely my blood. So, so I just you know started talking to my wife about it, and started taking on some side projects, and started a little company doing some side projects, doing mobile development, and I loved it. Loved the mobile space, and um, loved the kind of startup space too. So I was like I kind of want to do this full time and give it a shot. You know what do you think? And so we made some calculated risks. My my wife and I saved up some money so that we had a little bit of a cushion, and then made the jump. April 2015, we we made the jump. I left Alcon and um, started TouchTap. Then,
0: so a few questions on that. So you said you were doing software development on the side Mm -hmm. while you were working at Alcon. So is that is that hobby stuff? Was that like paid work for clients? Like how 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 did that work?
1: Good question. So it's both. Uh, It started out as hobby stuff. So I was a musician, right? I had some leftover music gear. In fact, all the music gear from my old music days, I ended up selling. Half of it I sold to buy my wife's engagement ring. And then half of it I sold to buy my first MacBook. So it's pretty iconic selling of all that music <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so bought the MacBook and had a buddy of mine and we were doing some kind of uh, projects together. We made a sports fan app. We made a, an app for Sending people social toasts like a picture of a glass and then some toast so the the sports the sports fan app we, we actually did get some traction we got the intention attention to some people got some good downloads we built it in a framework to where we could flip it for a bunch of different teams so that was um, that was more hobby stuff it was more You know, our own ideas. After that, started to take on projects for some agencies around here. And then a client um, in New Hampshire actually was the the first sort of fully remote client that we took on trying to build a uh, startup platform for. Um, So it was a little bit of both. Started out just as hobby stuff though.
0: Okay. So just to dig into that a little bit more, because I know people listening, including myself would be interested in this because you hear a lot about developers or I've worked with a bunch of developers who've, who've got apps and you know, they've got five downloads and it's been up for five years. So, <laughs> so how did you get a little bit of, so you said you got a bit of traction with the sports fan app. How did you do that? And then how did you make that transition? Cause it's still a side hustle going from being a hobby to being employed by an agency, even on the side. So how, how did that? Kind of how did you get noticed by them and how did you get a bit of traction for the sports fan app or was that just a bit of luck?
1: Sure. Um, so on the traction side, it was, it was half and half. It was half luck and half some really good relationship utilization, I would say, as far as my, my partner on the app. So my, my uh, best friend in the world, his name is Chris Gravy. He was my partner and, and our company was called G Lab. This was pre-touched app. And so he went. He actually went to Indiana University for uh, for a while, and he's from Indiana, so loves the school and had some great connections there. So the first app that we built for the sports fan was specifically built for IU. And so he went down there, went to a basketball game, kind of promoted it, talked to some people, talked to one of the biggest um, Hoosier fan site and got them to post it on their site. So so we got a lot of traction early on from that. And we actually hit the top 100 the day we released uh, because the downloads were going so quickly. So it was it was a lot in networking, a lot of you know the right the right placement, if that makes sense. So that that really helped a ton. Uh, and then as far as the transition into into contract work, I, I would I would definitely base that success on networking too. Chris and I went to the same church, and some of the individuals at the church were entrepreneurs and and agency owners, and we knew them, and so we kind of just started getting to know them a bit, and you know talking about ideas, and having lunches and things, and. And then, you know, they had some opportunities were like, hey, do y'all want to give it a shot? You know, I know you're early on. You give me a fee cut, you know, essentially, and and we'll give you the opportunity and and see how it goes. And so that's kind of how it started.
0: All right. So it sounds a lot like what they say is true and it's kind of networking plays a big part in it. Because I I feel like that's a big thing that holds people back, especially as software developers, is that we are not extroverts. It's like (laughs) generalization, but we're not. So if we yeah. have to go and talk to people to kind of put our name out there, we'd rather not do it.
1: Yeah, that's right on, Rob. I mean, I, I, I think it's so important for networking and it is It traditionally it's hard. It's hard and it's not something that naturally comes out of software developers. I would say it's probably as an entrepreneur, still one of the hardest things that I have to still do. And I've gotten, I've grown the muscles there, but it's still difficult to me. You know, I want to, I want to go on my hole and and create things and, you know, I want to be with my family and, and that's, that's, I don't, I don't need anybody else, you know? So, so then, you know, having to go out and network and really sell yourself, it's just, it's, it can be a little, little intimidating and draining, but it, it, but it is worth it. It's important.
0: Uh, Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, It makes me super uncomfortable to go to these events. But one thing, (laughs) one thing that makes me feel better when I'm there is so it's not like um going to a dinner party and trying to talk to everybody about Slack. It's like everybody here wants <laughs> to talk about Slack. So it's yeah. totally fine. And then suddenly it's like you're in your zone and it's all good.
1: That's right. That's a good uh that's a good story.
0: Okay. So that brings us to TouchTap, which is what I'm interested in. So I think you've kind of explained it, but just in case, maybe in a nutshell, so you've you've got an app that's got some traction on the side, you've still got a full time job, then you're doing some work for agencies, so you're making some money there, and then you've decided Rather than going, I'm going to go straight freelancer or I'm going to be on Elance or Upworks. I'm going to start a digital, uh, digital mobile development company. I guess the first question is, why did you go that route? And then how did you get started? Cause I feel like when you say, when you, like if you're a freelancer, everybody gets what that means, right? I work on my laptop, people give me money, I make stuff for them. But when you, when you make it official and you're a mobile development studio, I know that some, some people, for some people, that looks exactly the same. I work on my laptop in a coffee shop. And for other people, it's a whole different thing. So um, why did you choose to go that route and how did you get started?
1: Sure. Great question. So the early days were were pretty tumultuous. So that first project that we that I mentioned, we got on the side and, and it was kind of our, our landing project. Like, okay, we've got a project. We're going to jump and run. And it went south quick. It was one of the pivotal learning moments in my entrepreneurial career, um, so we, and excuse my kids, they're. No, worries, no worries. I'm at home.
0: <laughs> Sorry, you'll probably hear my dog barking head off in a minute as well. So it's all good. Perfect. No, that I'm saying dogs are like children at all.
1: <laughs> oh, but they are. <laughs> yeah, they are. I get it. So the early project that we had um, was with a salon in New Hampshire. So it was fully remote. And I left the corporate world with a lot of confidence, right? That I could. Run a project, do anything, build anything, and and you kind of need that as an entrepreneur—that sort of like blind faith in yourself um, that you're going to just figure it out. But that first project went south. Uh, you know, I bid I it way too low because I didn't know how to bid projects. That's something I didn't know how to do. I tried to hire a bunch of developers to make it, you know, like a, a four-person development team, including me. I was doing the design, which I'd never designed anything myself. You know, so I was I was doing a lot of that and I was making a lot of mistakes and the project went south. I ended up having to say, I've lost control of the project. <laughs> and you know, through, through some legal conversations, we ended up settling on like I'm gonna give you all of your money back. And so that was a that was a big hit, big kick in the gut early on. And you know, at the time it was anxiety provoking, it was like it felt like a failure, it felt like like, why did I leave the corporate world? And you know, uh, all kudos to my wife. My wife was the one sitting there saying, "This is just part of the journey. This is a part of what you're trying to do. You're gonna get back up. You're gonna learn and go start again." And so I did. And after that, I decided, okay, what do I know? And I said, I know how to write software. So that's what I'm gonna go do. So you asked, you know, like agency versus freelancer, and some people have a company and it's really just a front for the freelancer. Was after that project, I started out with as just essentially touched out was just me. And so I, I took on a couple of mobile projects, um, did a bunch of networking still, a uh, bunch of agencies and kind of got connected with people and took on a couple of projects. And at that point, we were making enough money to basically eat, which was great, right? We we're eating, <laughs> uh, eating, paying the rent and stuff. So, okay, great. So we're, we're doing this now. Okay, cool. So continued to reach out and network while I was still coding and taking on more work, more work. And at, before I knew it, you know, a few months later, I was overloaded. I had too much work for me to do myself, and so I decided to bring on some part-time help. You know, move forward, move forward, uh, and then ended up getting overloaded between the two of us. So I had to bring that person on full-time, and then so you know, fast forward a couple of years, which TouchTap is is not an operation right now. But fast forward a couple of years after that, when it was at its peak you know we were 13 14 contractors strong we were running multiple projects we were having projects we were doing projects um, support projects for bigger companies like Park Place dealerships uh, which is a which is a nice dealership based in the area um, and then some bigger startups that were solidified and had funding and things like that so we were really in a great spot but the the reason we got to that point is because we took the incremental wins and kept growing incrementally not trying to bite off the whole elephant we just kept growing i started with what i knew Grew, grew as uh, I needed to, and, and essentially grew with my growth. So that's how I progressed from just me as a with an agency front to being, you know, uh, lots, uh, lots of contractors working with me.
0: So I heard on, I think it was the podcast junkie interview that you did, kind of in passing, you mentioned that when you were operating TouchTap, you hired developers, and I think you you mentioned that you gave them code tests as part of the hiring process. It, yeah, that's right. So am I right in saying that the team that you hired was fully remote? So there wasn't like an office building, everybody was working from somewhere else.
1: That's right. Yeah. We were, we were all fully remote across the, the US and Canada, a couple people in, in the UK. And then um, I had one guy that was in New Zealand, I believe.
0: So going back to the co-testing. So basically what was the co-test that you gave them firstly um, and kind of how did that work? Because I've had, one Well, really, I've had one good experience with a co-test and lots of very bad experience with co-tests where <laughs> you can give me the test and I 100% can tell you right now I can't do it, but you can tell me what you actually want me to do after the test and I can 100% do it if my eyes closed. <laughs> so what what kind of test did you set on for that and what was the review process?
1: Sure. Great question. So, And, and I, I can't take credit for the test because a test was given to me and I stole the test uh, because I thought it was a reasonable test. So I, I went to do when I was just, it was just me and working touch tab. One of the projects I took on was basically white labeling for another agency. So you know, essentially my agency wearing their t-shirt kind of thing. And, and it was great. Uh, the, the, um, the agency was called Tanuki Labs. Great people, really enjoyed working with me and actually learned a lot of good procedures and ways to do PRs and things that I still employ today. Uh, but they gave me a coding test and it was, it was incredibly simple. You know, it wasn't it wasn't connected to an API. It wasn't connecting to an API or anything. It wasn't this big sort of project. And it was take home. So it wasn't like um, you know, like here you have one hour to build this app that can, you know, you gotta pull in all the pods and you gotta hook up Alamo Fire and you know, you gotta get it. you gotta pull this a- API endpoint and then translate JSON. You, nobody can do that an hour. There's no point. And there's not a there's not a reason to have to do that on the fly, too. There's so much documentation. But but if someone Will take the time to do a take-home project and show that they can code and get it done somehow. You know, then then they're I would say they're more like let's say seventy five percent. They're they're seventy five percent sure assured that they can do the job. And so I did that test and then basically started using that test for my developers as well. And it was a simple it was a simple like multi view controller multi view kind of going back and forth. There was a counter you had to you know retain some state. Um, you know, save some some data when you went back and forth. So it just gave it gave the it gave the developer, the person being interviewed, the opportunity to show, hey, I know how the lifecycle works. I know how to wire this all together, and then that was enough. And so that that helped a lot. We did one. We did the same sort of test for Android developers and iOS developers. Uh, back then, it was just Java, and and then I think it was still in the transition to Swift. But I think we did it in Swift. But that's what we did. And, and it, it really helped a lot. It just basically weeded out the people that really didn't know what they were doing, but knew how to put together a resume of some portfolio of stuff they had found on the internet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Is is more like a kind of real world test because all the tests I've seen are not anything anybody would ever ask you to do outside of no, a test.
1: No, not at all.
0: So then I guess I have one other question, which I don't really know. If it applies being that we're both software engineers, but I figure I'll ask it anyways, because one of the things I think before COVID at least was outside of software engineering and even inside for the most part, really, actually, is working from home or working remotely is not a thing. And I feel like a big part of that is people don't think that you're actually going to do work you know because in in the few scenarios before it was quite common where you could work from home it would be you have to work from home but you have to use this software on your computer so we can check in and make sure your computer was on and etc etc and i feel like covid changed that but being that you were the owner of a studio that then had to deliver products to other people did you ever have a concern that i've hired these people they're working remotely if they come back to me and say it's not ready Have they been wasting the time, or has it legitimately taken this long to do the work?
1: Sure, that's a that's a great question. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to answer because I don't think there's a formula for it. Um, But but having done done the remote thing for a while, and also having recently, you know, taken my team at Variable Remote due to COVID, uh, I I do have some some important things. I think so. Whenever we did it at TouchTap. It was a little bit of a different situation because these weren't in full, full-time full employees that are on salary, right? So their results that they're producing as far as delivering code, delivering updates, staying communicative, really uh, meant that they were going to get paid. <laughs> so, so at the end of the day, there was a large incentive to stay connected. And a lot of the people that I hired to uh, were... Had been freelancing for a while or had been had their own agency for a while. And so they they sort of knew the ropes. Um, they were a little bit more trustworthy. So there was a little bit more, less concern from me as far as them not doing their jobs, right? Because we, we had set forth like, this is the project. This is what I need you to deliver. If you don't want to deliver, I can't pay you kind of thing. So that, so that was a little different. Um, so at TouchTap, it was a little more contractually driven. But I think, I think more importantly, and what I, what I feel like I missed at TouchTap, what I feel like I, did, I didn't do a good job of, and I didn't really learn it until I got to Variable, uh, started Variable. The team at, at Variable was not remote. It was in-office. And what was really amazing about my tech team was the culture that we built on the team, being able to you know, recognize people's, the way they responded to things or you know, understand how they worked, um, understanding how we all best work together, doing enough processes, having enough processes in place to have an operation while still allowing personal autonomy and mastery in what, in what was being done. So we built this really amazing culture and then COVID hit, right? And then so we went remote and what i noticed about that was that that we actually increased our output working remote then because our culture was already established right so we're working remote we don't maybe not have the touch points you know where we can get on a whiteboard and and draw out a ui or a flow or how we're going to you know break out a monolith into microservices or things like that but but we already had that culture in place so that when we're doing it digitally, we know what we're doing. We know we already have that in place. So it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing that I think is a decision that, is, that has to be made per team. And there are ways to do it well, I think. And there are ways to, that will still pro, not provide, but that will still generate more fear um, for people that are worried about people not doing things, right? If you've got that culture and you've got that trust, the speed of trust then then you can go remote you can go remote you can work 2 days a week and not talk to the people except for those 2 days right because you know they're going to get it done it's not even about the remote it's just about the trust and i think if you don't have that culture there's a lot of fear there uh, for managers for owners things like that so you kind of have to keep those both those things in check so that's a little bit of my story I, again i don't think there's a formula for it I think it works for some, doesn't work for others, but but I've definitely had some good experiences with it.
0: So on, on kind of a just a, a side tangent. How did you find the people that you hired for TouchTap?
1: Great question. Um, Networking. (laughs) Definitely back to the networking. Yeah, for TouchTap, it was all about the networking. You know, It would be their networking with other agencies. It'd be networking on on LinkedIn. Just even be like, hey, I want to connect with you because you seem like you know what you're doing. You seem like you've built some cool stuff. Cool. Maybe we could work together someday. And whether or not I had something to work with that person or not, just connecting with them and being like, hey, cool. Yeah, good job. You're awesome. We'll touch base later. You know, um, so always be networking there you know I, I would uh I would look for freelance developers i would look for i would look for career changing developers too um which is interesting I've really sort of changed my my perspective on that nowadays, because um, my variable team is actually mostly career-changing developers, um, and it's been uh, it's been amazing. The team at Variable is amazing, and my team at TouchTap was amazing uh, as well. But there were some some career changers, people that maybe just got out of boot camp that knew how to be professional, knew how to be a you know a communicative developer, but needed some experience, right? And I could give them that oversight and things like that. So that's that's sort of how I went about it. There was no specific formula for touch for sure, though.
0: Okay. And then just, I guess, another side tangent. Is there any tools aside from you know Slack or the obvious ones that you guys found that were particularly useful? I feel like there might be some really interesting things that come out of COVID because people have been forced to work and so they might find new problems and new solutions. But so yeah. far for me, it's Slack does the job for most things.
1: No doubt. I, I think I think the one thing we haven't figured out, um, or didn't figure out and still are figuring out at um at variable is sort of screen sharing while video sharing. There's some tools out there, but I would like for that to be in Slack. You know, <laughs> I like to say like code share or or you know, slash code share or whatever, and then pop open a a call with a screen sharing element. There used to be there used to be um some tool I think that I used more often. I don't remember, but that's really useful right when you're checking some code or running a query or things like that. There's a lot of them out there, but I don't know how many integrate with Slack.
0: You mentioned it. So we can jump straight into Variable. Just just a quick rundown for the audience. What is Variable?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So Variable is an on-demand marketplace for manufacturing labor. So what in the world does that mean? We have an Uber tagline like other on-demand companies. So we're the Uber of the manufacturing shop floor. So, we we connect manufacturing businesses. And when I say manufacturing, really think of the entire supply chain distribution, warehouses, the whole thing with on demand uh, workers so they can flex up and flex down their internal capacity to meet their demand. So, rather than hiring full time people or going through a staffing agency, which is really full time people for the short time, they can build a labor pool and then pull those people in and out as they need to. From a worker side, we provide daily pay diverse work opportunities and really the ability to set your own schedule and kind of control your own destiny in the palm of your hand so win-win for the marketplace so that's what variable is
0: so then my question is how do you go from touch tap to variable and mostly the question is that because as a software engineer I would never think to work on that or create that kind of business unless I was already on the shop floor, and then I probably wouldn't have the skill set to think, "Oh, I could create a business to fix this problem." So, <laughs> so, so, where was where was the the bridge between the two?
1: Sure, uh, great question. So, we'll start with TouchTap. So, with TouchTap, we were building essentially startup solutions for early startups. Uh, we were building a lot of MVPs. And so I got a lot of the um, startup itch from building those things, where some of the ideas I, I liked some of them I was like, ah, okay, this may work. I'll build it for you right because you're paying me." And I didn't really see anything where I was like, "Man, I, I would really love to just invest in this, but I wanted to. I wanted to do, you know, build my own startup. And um, at that time, uh, I, I, Ryland Barnes, actually one of my longtime friends, uh, college roommate for four years. We were in each other's weddings, a really good friend of mine. He's also a successful tech entrepreneur here in Dallas, uh, the DFW area in Texas. And I, I reached out to him, I was like, Hey, you know, I'm doing my agency thing, we're doing well, but I've really got the itch to to start my own startup. But I'm the execution guy, I'm not the idea guy, right? So I didn't have any great ideas. And I was like, But if you know anybody looking for a tech founder, you know, introduce us, uh, I'll at least talk to them and see if it's something that I'm I'm jazzed about. And he said he said pretty quickly, he's like, You need to talk to Mike, Mike Kinder. So He's my partner in Variable. We started Variable together um, and the idea originated with Mike. So he came, we we sat down for lunch um, and he pitched me basically on on Variable. So a little background on Mike. Mike has been an operations manager at many manufacturing plants and and prior to Variable he was a, a director of strategic operations for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So he went went to different manufacturing plants as a consultant and basically told them how to run their operations and where they should make changes and stuff. And what he saw was all this great technology was coming Down the pipe, IoT, Google Glass, you know, all this training technology and, you know, industry 4.0 and all this new tech on the manufacturing shop floor. And he also saw how expensive it was and how people weren't going to invest that kind of money in it without knowing that they were going to be able to, you know, get the return. And they were never going to have the flexibility to make that investment until they solved their labor problem. And, And he saw that and he thought, well, we'll, this is this is an on-demand labor market right, right here. Like This is how we solve this problem. So he pitched that to me at lunch that day. A little bit of background on me. So I mentioned I worked in manufacturing while I was at Alcon for uh, three or four years. I was an IT manager there. And so I lived the manufacturing life. Like I understood, supported two plants, supported the engineering group. So we were heavily embedded into the shop floor, the networking, all the, the stuff that was going on, and also into the budget process. And I just saw how rigid the whole operation was and how... Always, it was like every day was like survival. Right, we got to get these orders out, and if we hit any sort of roadblock, there's going to be delays, and lead times are going to go up. We're going to, have to bring in staffing and and all kinds of stuff, and and it's a it's a tough environment. And you know, having built startup solutions for people for the you know the past couple of years, I was like, you know, I can shoot holes in startup ideas all day long. You know, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll build that for you, but this is why it's not going to work. And I could not shoot holes in this idea. I could not find a way. I didn't think it was going to be easy, but I could not find something wrong with the idea. And so talked to my wife about it. And we decided to to give it a shot and started in on started in on variable.
0: All right, cool. So then I guess the next question is from a from a tech point of view, somebody's come to you, they've pitched you this idea, you think it's great, you're you're all in. And you're your CTO. So there's nothing and then you have to build this thing and you have to hire the right people and you <laughs> have to know. Cause so I've, I've worked in startups before as well, but I've always gone in at the point where there's already something. And then you build on that. And sometimes the like the foundation is terrible and it doesn't scale. And sometimes it's good. But I've never been at the start phase where it's like, right? How do you like? How do you decide? Are you going to use AWS? Are you going to use this? How do you decide? We're going to write this thing in Python or we're going to write this thing in Rails? How how does that happen? And, and what was that like for you as CTO?
1: Great question. So at at TouchTap, what we got really good at was building MVPs, deciding. And helping our clients work through what is the most important thing to build now? And what is what can you wait for? And where can you take on a where can you take on technical debt? Right. And, and we didn't say it like that, but like where can we use perhaps a pre-built solution or where can we stand up things that are already made, right? um and so having that experience i stepped into variable knowing how to do that being being very well versed in in thinking about okay this is what is the minimum viable product i need to build to make this marketplace happen and we decided on you know a back end a portal for the businesses and then a mobile app for the operators i was very passionate about mobile native mobile and getting that in the hands of the workers. And I thought, okay, we can build a website for the business users because they're going to be pretty much at a computer most of the time. And, and in the back end, we used a um, what used to be a mobile backend as a service. We we actually used open source parse to start out with our back end. And, and we customized it through custom cloud code and um, and built it, you know, and parsed it's on Mongo. So we got the solution up and running. Was it optimal? No, technically, uh, from a technology standpoint, but it was working. And when you have zero users, the you know, or or call it you know, ten businesses and a few hundred operators, you don't need a really robust, elastic, backed up system, right? You just need something that's going to work. And so, through my experience at TouchTap, I, I got really good at doing that. And then. Took it into variable and built that MVP, knowingly taking on certain technical debt and things. And that, that's how we made those decisions of early, you know, trade-offs and decisions. And, and that's how we, you know, I asked this in my in my show uh, is is you know the coping with those decisions is knowing how they're going to turn out later, and knowing that we're going to have this huge hurdle that we're going to have to do later. But for now, we can get there faster and cheaper.
0: I suppose that is what makes the big difference because. That totally makes sense to me. And from companies that I've worked at, they've got tech debt from the start, but it often feels like they didn't realize it was going to be there until six months down the line. And now it's this huge problem. And then it ends up like this, playing this game of Jenga where, you know, I want to replace this, but if I pull this thing out, what's going to break? So that, that sounds like a, that sounds like a good approach to it
1: if if you know it going into it it's very freeing because you're like i'm i'm choosing this and i know that later i'm going to have to do some work but i'm choosing it for now and there's good reason to choose it and, and it doesn't work for everybody so sometimes they got to build everything out of the gate and that's okay it just takes longer and it costs more money but if you if you can get away with that you can get a solution out there prove your concept faster and and go from there
0: yeah, I agree. And I was going to say, I think you're wearing a Darknet Diaries t-shirt. Am I right? I am. Yeah. Because I was going to say, a great t-shirt would be Tech Debt by choice. So, <laughs> if anybody wants to print that, I'm sure someone wants to buy it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, wait, Tech Debt by what? <laughs> tech Tech by debt choice. By choice.
0: <laughs> that's a That's a good idea. Sign for a t-shirt or a hashtag, surely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll throw that in the uh, in the code story uh, store on T Public. I'll, I'll see if I can make
0: something. There we go. Awesome. So I have I have another question about being CTO, which is what would a developer, front end, back-end, doesn't matter not know about being a CTO. I don't know if that's the right way to frame it, but I guess what I'm trying to say is as developers, so often in companies that I've worked with, especially startups, they promote from within. So really whoever was there first is going to be CTO when it gets big enough that they need a CTO. And often it seems that, you know, yesterday this guy was your buddy and he was your friend. And then tomorrow it seems more like he's your manager and you feel like But you knew the problems that were here yesterday. So why now that you're in this different role, does it seem like you don't know that those problems are here? And 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 I assume that's because there's a lot about being CTO that we as developers just assume all being CTO means is that you now get to make decisions about tech. And I'm sure that's very far from the truth. So as as someone who's just a developer. What would you say is something that we wouldn't know or, or what's involved in being CTO that we wouldn't know?
1: Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Cause there's there's kind of two things there uh, you mentioned. One, being promoted from within, right? So you are a developer or a lead, right? And you're you are peers with the individual on the team rather than, you know, a, a manager, right? Um, and that's a little different because then your relationship changes, right? And you have to be upfront about, you know, either Hey, I'm putting my manager hat on now, and this is what we need to how we need to operate. Or, hey, this relationship is going to change now because I'm your manager. Um, that's a really difficult difficult situation, and I have been I've been in that position. I was in that position at Alcon, and it's it's challenging. I think that one interesting thing that that really helped though, and, and perhaps this is me, or I don't know if this is a, a strategy or not, but just just being blunt with people and open and transparent with people, even if your peers are not. Like if you want a culture and a team of success and of working hard and driving towards a result, you have to carry that even if you're, if you're just being a developer or if you're a lead or a CTO or anything. Everybody has to carry that. So I think that makes that transition easier. So my... But to answer your question... Uh, so that's that path. But to answer your question, kind of a, you know, what what would... What do I know now that I didn't know when I was just a developer? I say just a developer, like just a developer. Develop being a developer is the coolest job in the world.
0: <laughs> yeah, when I said it, it sounded weird as well, but I couldn't think of a better term. So
1: no, it's great. It, it makes sense, but you know, I I think um, I think developers are are awesome. They're creative. They're uh, technical geniuses. They're they're right brained and left brained. I, I love I love working with working with developers. Um, used to be one. Still, still am one. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. You, you can never stop being a developer. Once you've written one yeah. line of code, it counts. So. That's right. That's right. You still have the edge.
1: But so, so what do I know? I spend a lot more time on building roadmaps, setting strategic direction, and focusing on team culture than I do uh, writing code or I do, you know, checking PRs or. Whiteboarding or things like that. I spend more time making sure that our team is functioning at a high caliber, and we know where we're going and when we're going there. So that that's something that I sort of knew as a manager, but not necessarily as a developer from my time at Alcon. But it's it's even more the extreme when you are the head of the the of the product roadmap, if that makes sense. So we do have a product team. So I say I'm the head. I'm kind of the the co head or the joint head. But being the founder, I'm, I'm definitely feel the ownership of the product. And so I feel uh, like that was something I didn't really know was going to take up so much of my time. It's awesome. I I really enjoy it, especially the team culture part. Uh, I really enjoy that. But it's different. It's not writing code. It's not creating. Uh, It is creating in a different way. There's another part too that I'd say that, that I'll note is that You know The term CTO is different in in lots of different companies, right? So in our company, um, and at Variable, CTO for me is... is, I don't do a lot of coding. I I don't do much coding, actually, at at Variable. And that's strategic and that's difficult. But it's also uh, strategic because from a team culture standpoint, I want my team to have autonomy. I want my team to have mastery. I want them to take ownership of their baby, which is our platform. And the results are through the roof better than if I was in there coding with them or telling them how to do it. One, they're better coders than I am, which is which is why I hired them. <laughs> and and two, you know, I just don't have all the answers and I don't want to have all the answers. I, I take more of a servant leadership coaching mentality and try to draw the the best out of my team that way. So that's our role. But at the same time, you know, other, other startups, other companies, the CTO means you're in their coding. You're in there, you know, you're really more like a lead developer with say so and how you're going to build an architect stuff. So it's different per company, but that's how it works for us.
0: I think it gets confusing when the CTO is also kind of the lead developer across all the departments because then they're making all the decisions and you forget that they're also the person that's making the decision and they're not just a rogue developer. Yeah, it makes sense to kind of take the CTO role and not CTO slash lead developer.
1: Right. Most of us have have a a certain lane of vision, right? And if one person is responsible for all the decisions, the product is only going to fit in that lane of vision. But if you add in everybody else's opinions and decisions and let them own it, you're going to have a way better product too. You're going to have a way better team. Everybody's Everybody's going to be happier. It just works better. It's hard as an engineer to take your hands off of stuff. I totally get that. And I'm still working on that. That's something I I still have a hard time with, but it's really important.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed. So not, not in closing, but I kind of wanted to jump into code story a little bit before we finish up. So I kind of know the backstory. But for, for the listeners that haven't heard it, if you haven't heard it, you should definitely check it out. But for those who haven't heard it, can you give a little bit of backstory about? So, firstly, why did you start Code Story and what is Code Story?
1: Sure. So, I'll start with the second question. So, so Code Stories is a, a podcast that I started um, where I interview tech visionaries about their, their human story of bringing you know, a disruptive product to an industry, essentially building a product from nothing. And I say human story because you know we get into tech in the interviews. We get into how they solve problems. I'm a tech guy, so I, I know how to dig into that. But it's more from the perspective of of what I mentioned earlier. If you're a carpenter, uh, you use a hammer. So if I ask you about how you built the house, you're going to tell me about that hammer, right? Or you know, if you're a, a race car driver, you're going to tell me something about your car and how that makes you the best race car driver. So when I interview tech visionaries about how they built their products and how they went about their story, I'm looking for the human side and they're going to tell me what hammers they use. You know, they're going to tell me how they scaled their products using AWS, right? They're gonna they're gonna tell me why they chose to take on certain technical debt, or, um, or you know why they um, scaled a certain way. So I'm interviewing tech visionaries, basically trying to surface that journey, that early startup journey of of building a product, building something from nothing, um, and, and, you know in the name of a of a great idea. How I got started with it. Um, I, I similar to, to your story with your show, um, I was looking for... I'm a huge How I Built This fan. Guy Raw is amazing. He does a great job of the show. Um, when, I first, um, when I first heard, the, heard of the show, I was, I was binging it. I was just listening to all kinds of episodes and still do. And, and I was like, man, I want this for tech. I want this for tech just specifically, looked around and found a few shows that that did a great job, but but weren't exactly that. They weren't to music. They weren't narrated. They weren't trying to bring out the tension of the story from a human side uh, about a tech visionary. And so it's like, okay, um, maybe I'll give it a shot. I had a couple of friends that had started podcasts and they'd done well with their podcast. So I was like, okay, I, I, I'm a musician. You know, I understand audio, I understand how to edit, I understand all that stuff. So why don't I give it a shot? So I interviewed my friend. I mentioned Rylan Barnes. Uh, he's the, actually the first episode of, of Code Story, uh, episode one, season one. Um, his product, Shop Savvy. And he came over, got the equipment. He came over and we uh, did the first interview um, at my house. And it was two hours long. <laughs> it was so long. And had to edit that down to something like 40 minutes. But I started doing all the editing myself. And it took me six to seven months to get like half the episode done. And I was just, I was in the way, I was in my own way. And so I ended up hiring an editor for that first season. Uh, I hired a different editor for the second season. And now I'm actually back to editing myself um, for season three. But I I really got in my own way in the beginning and uh, hired an editor. We released the first episode in uh, June of 2019. So about a uh, little over a year ago. Uh, And then we were off to the races. So now we're about 53 episodes in. Awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to try and stay away from a lot of the questions that have already been answered because I feel like if, if people want to know about more about Code Story, you guys should go and listen to Code Story. It's an awesome podcast, but I have a couple of questions. So at the start, I asked, you know, what do you do outside of tech? And do you feel like the podcast is something outside of tech and outside of, I guess work is probably more appropriate. And do you see it as a hobby or do you see it as kind of, um, something else? Good question.
1: Um, I see it more as a hobby. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fun. Uh, I like the audio editing. I like the creative process in it. The first two seasons, I kind of tried to run it like a business um, and tried to grow it and tried to make money off of it. And it was exhausting. <laughs> so, you know, this season, I'm, I'm kind of I'm taking a little different approach and, and doing the editing myself and just kind of getting back to my roots. And just going back to that hobby state, and it's been really refreshing. It's been great. not not that that either of my editors did a bad job. In fact, they did an amazing job. and and I'm emulating a lot of the work that they did. Um, it's really just about getting back to the not trying to, you know, scratch for sponsorships and stuff just to make ends meet. So yeah, I consider it more more of a hobby. At the same time, it's also um, and I've mentioned networking many times um, in in your other questions, and it's it's a networking thing for me. Like, I get to talk to the some of the coolest CTO founders, CEOs of tech tech companies um, out there. Um, I'm interviewing um, Tim Speck of of Dubsmash, I think, in a couple of weeks. I've interviewed um, Jonathan Perichin from Checker, the, the guy from Reddit. I'm trying to remember everybody's names. I'm terrible with names, but. Lots of really interesting companies and and their stories and just really getting to meet them and be like, hey, how can I help you? You know, can we keep in touch? Kind of stuff like that. I, I've got a, a CTO circle Slack room that I created for people that I interview if they want to jump in and stay in touch. It's, it's really cool. So for me, yeah, it's a hobby, but it's also a, a huge networking opportunity just to meet people, get my name out there, get the show's name out there, um, but also just to learn.
0: Yeah, I feel like the hobby approach is a nice kind of relaxed way to go about it. Because otherwise it does get this uncomfortable thing where it's like you're running a side business and then you you kind of, you know, you ha- you have fun doing the interviews and then the rest of it just becomes like a grind. And I've, yeah. I've only been doing it like I think this will be number 11 for me. And I've, or- I've already realized that the fun of it is this and then the editing is fun because I personally also find that fun. But if I had to do all the other things that I see other people doing around it, it's just I, I wouldn't want to do it.
1: Totally. It's a, it's a tough business and it's a tough business to, to, you know, if you're trying to make a bunch of money, I, I I think there are ways to do it in podcasting, but I don't, I don't want to do them.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Likewise. So, so one other question that I have on Code Story and before we kind of close up the interview is, is there any interesting tech or anything that you found particularly interesting from all the people that you've interviewed that you didn't know about or that you thought afterwards, Oh, I'm going to go and take a look at that.
1: Sure. Um, you know, as far as me using it, yes, uh, yes, and no. I think I I always try to evaluate the tools that people are have built. You know, I interviewed Ryan Graciano of Credit Karma. I, I was already a Credit Karma user, um, so I get to kind of you know give him a big thumbs up and tell him he's doing a great job. Uh, But there are other smaller tools that I get to look at, um, that I get to try out, uh, which is really cool. And I I do that anyway. I'm I'm subscribed to a lot of startup um, newsletters and things like beta List and product hunt and things like that. So I know about the new stuff that's coming out. But there's a couple couple of of companies that I've interviewed that I, I didn't know... That what they built was becoming a product. So uh, I haven't released this episode yet, but there is a um, a company uh, called Looking Glass Factory, and it's it's they create holographic like like spanable three dimensional images, and the the hardware and the software paired with it was just really interesting. You know, it, it's not something I'm going to go out and, and build. But, but it, it did inspire me to remember that people are out there inventing some really cool stuff, you know, like back to the future too. Uh, the guy interviews, name is Sean Frayne, and, and he, he, he mentioned that movie and was like, yeah, I wanted to take, uh, you know, the, the giant dinosaur that came and ate Marty McFly, you know, that hologram. I wanted that to be real. So I, I went out and set up to build it and I was like, that's just, that's just cool. Another example, there's a guy, uh, his name's Andrew Smith of Outrider. He built an automated distribution yard. So yards, you've probably seen them or people heard them that just have chassis of trucks, 18-wheeler trucks, right? Just around. And most of those are managed manually by people going around the yard and, and driving and moving the trucks around. Well, he built an automated yard management system where there is um, an automated truck that's electric, there's no emissions, there's a cloud-based solution where essentially there's like an air traffic controller, so to speak, sitting there with a, a controller saying, move this chassis you know, to spot 57, which is you know on the other side of the yard. And there's an automated machine that goes and gets it, pulls it around, you know, has cameras and the vision system all set up. And just the engineering problem that he solved by building that was just so cool. Such a cool problem. You know, it's not like the flashy, you know, like social media solutions or things like that, but it's it's a real problem in the chassis arts. And um, yeah, it was super cool to hear about it.
0: Okay. All right. That sounds awesome. I have one kind of follow-up question to that, that kind of loops back to what you said earlier, which was, so when you were, well, when you had TouchTap, you were building MVPs essentially for startups, and then you transitioned to your company now. And you just kind of start it off with an MVP and, you know, like tech tech by choice. I'm going to run with that now.
1: <laughs> I'm making that t-shirt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll buy one. I'll buy one. So, so my question is kind of for someone. So for example, for me, if I was going to build an app or when I do build apps for myself, they're kind of side hobby projects, but you know, if somebody wants to pay for them. That's great. And for me, my tech stack of choice is usually Firebase because for my user base, like the scale of my user base is 100% free. It has all the things that I would want. And, you know, it's a little bit painful at times, but it's worth it for me to do that, than spend money on something else. So not saying it has to be free, but what would you kind of say if you were building, let's say, a mobile app that needs some sort of backend infrastructure that could or could not scale? What would be your, I guess, your MVP kind of tech stack of choice at this point?
1: Sure. That's a that's a great question. Um, I, I would definitely start with Firebase. I, I would I would also recommend that. Apple has an on-demand content system um, that, that is available as well. I haven't used it before, but I have a guy I interviewed. His name's Mark Hendricks of Wild Ventures. His app is like a Nature Sounds app, and he uses that in his app. Uh, so that's really interesting as well. But there's not a lot of um, mobile backend as a system, uh, as a service, excuse me, as a service out there anymore since Parse died. There is one I've heard, uh, Backendless. Which is another one maybe to look at, but but if I was if I was recommending, I'd say go go do Firebase because that that's kind of the easiest to get up and running on.
0: Okay, I was just I was just interested. <laughs> so in closing, last couple of questions, which I like to ask everyone. Mo- I think mostly because it's of interest to me. I feel like probably most people listening don't care, but I, I like to. know. <laughs> what machine do you use to work from?
1: Uh, MacBook Pro uh, 20, uh, 2020, I guess I bought it this year. Uh, MacBook Pro 16 inch, the the biggest one they have.
0: Do you find that 16 inch to be portable? Because the last time I remember seeing 16 inches, they were not.
1: Yeah, well, i I had been working, I've been working on a um, before this year a 2015 15 inch, and, and I took it everywhere, and so it, it it's good for me. Um, but so the 2016 was, uh, I'm sorry, the 16 inch for this year was an easy transition. It's light, it's portable. Um, but yeah, that's that's my machine. And it's it's beefy. I run. Xcode, Sketch, SQL Studio, email, everything on it, and it doesn't even you know blink.
0: So then, the last question before we close up is um, another one which I like to ask everyone, which is, and it will be interesting because you know being a CTO as well, what would you say separates an okay developer from a great developer?
1: That's a great question. Actually, I love that question. Eric Sink uh, wrote an article. I've never met Eric, um, but I found this article on his on his website. And it talks about startups need developers, not programmers. And at first, that struck me because I was like, okay, where is he going here? But uh, this is something I actually put into my expectations documents, a variable for any new hires, is at variable, We we you have to be a developer. And I say, what sets apart a good developer is... Being able to, you know, code eighty percent of the time, right? But then that other twenty percent to be able to contribute to the thought process, right? Be able to solve problems, be able to have strategic conversations, and I think even more importantly than that, being able to communicate regularly um, through all mediums—Slack, email, voice, phone, text—be um, able to present. So that's, you know, status and how we're doing things and where we're going, but also translate, being able to listen to an end user or being able to listen to internal, you know, product team member that says, we really want to accomplish this and translating this very abstract idea into these are the 10 things we got to go do in code and this is how we're going to architect it. So I think those things are really what sets apart a good developer from an okay developer is... Being able to participate in the strategic conversation of not only the tech, but the, the business part of it, because that's why there is the tech, is the business part of it. So I think being good at that, it, it makes you lethal.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think every answer I've had to this question, and probably you've summed it up the best, but it's always what separates them is something to do that's outside of tech. Mm-hmm. It's never is never to do with the tech. The tech is the easy part. So, <laughs> Yep. Okay, cool. So, in closing, where would you like people to find you? Where can they find Code Story? All of that good stuff.
1: Sure. Well, first off, this has been really fun. Super enjoyed the conversation. You can find me at noalabpart.com for me personally. If you want to check out Code Story, it's codestory.co or on any major podcast directory. And if you want to learn more about Variable, you can go to variableops.com.
0: Big thanks to today's guest, Noah Labhart. You can connect with Noah on LinkedIn, you can check out Code Story at codestory.co. It's a really slick and well-produced podcast, and I highly recommend it. And finally, you can find out more about Variable at variableops.com. As always, you can find everything we talked about in this episode in the show notes. If you like the show, tell a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. It's much appreciated. And if you really like the show, you can support it with a coffee donation at coffeeandcodingpodcom slash coffee Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with like-minded developers, you can do so in our Facebook community. And finally, you can follow me on your favorite social media platform at Low Carb Rob. You can find all the links to everything I've just said in the show notes or at coffeeencodingpod.com. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee and Coding Podcast.